Hello and welcome to the Squeaky Bum Time podcast presented exclusively on the Chop Sports channel of the Premier Streaming Network. We're recording this on Thursday, February 9th. I am your host, Laurent Cortines. In this episode, we'll talk the Merseyside Derby, the weird M23 Derby, and the Uniteds playing each other for the second time this week. But first, the Super League is back. Manchester City are in the news, and this is all connected. Let's get to it. First, please like, subscribe to the show. We need you. We love you. We appreciate you. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're everywhere. So please like and subscribe to the show. We need you as much as we can. Uh, We thank everyone who's joining the show, and especially my friend Tony Skalicki, who doesn't like soccer, but is listening to the show anyway. Thank you for that. Uh, First, the Super League is back. Okay, what is the Super League? Last year, we had um, an attempt by the richer, older clubs of Europe, your established hierarchy, your aristocrats of football, Barca, Juve, Real Madrid, Manchester United, Liverpool, uh, not PSG and not Bayern, but Borussia Dortmund, whatever, whatever the case was, trying to create a closed shop league. What does that mean? They wanted to make a league that is different from the sporting life of Europe. Um They wanted to make it like the NFL. For those of you that don't know, the NFL in the U.S. is by far the richest sport in the league, uh, by far the most valuable franchises in the league, and is literally the most valuable sporting enterprise in the world. Um, It's a closed shop, 17 games a year, controlled labor costs, controlled television, the least valuable NFL franchise, the Jacksonville Jaguars, would be the top, the most valuable team in Europe. So European sports have been trying to get to an NFL model as much as possible because what you have in Europe is jeopardy. American sports are a socialist oligarchy where the rich teams stay rich. It's very controlled. And Europe's sporting culture is hyper-competitive where each team every season fights for its survival in the standing that it has. Now, the big teams stay there and they want to stay there, but they don't have control over costs. What happens in England affects what happens in Spain. What happens in France affects what happens in Spain. It's not a closed league. So within Europe, as the leagues get richer and richer and more competitive and more competitive, other leagues, big teams have slowly fallen down in the revenue bottle as their country's markets cannot be squeezed anymore for any more money. So that was the Super League. Um, its initial release by Florentino Perez, the president of Real Madrid, went over like a lead balloon. Uh, the English clubs and the English fans specifically really protested hard and made known what was up with this. They protested. There were marches in the streets. There were burning of fans in effigy. It was an organic display of unity against anti-competitive, oligarchical, regulatory capture of the wealth of football. Fans are okay with competitive battling. Fans are okay with teams having money. What fans are not okay with is the idea of a team coming from nowhere building itself up and getting into 
the Premier League. So in England, this is possible. You can buy a team in the fourth division, spend money, and grow it slowly and get to the Premier League. It has happened. It is real. But we're on to the second Super League. So the marketing company and agency behind this, something called A20 or A22, something out of Spain, has presented another round of this, and it has removed some of the barriers. There's been a little bit more thinking this time around it. And it's expanded to 60 clubs, a guarantee of 14 games, uh, promotion and relegation. So they they heard all the things that were happening and um, are trying to float this trial balloon. The clubs are all saying again, oh, this is bullshit. This isn't real, blah, blah, blah. And they are fighting it or saying the politically right thing to say. Um, I think this is a reaction to the Premier League. The Premier League is now three or four times the revenue of all the other leagues combined. This is a reaction to the wealth that has and competitiveness of the Premier League. Um, we talked about it last week, how the Premier League was founded as a want to break away and make money process in 1992 and how the clubs shared revenue. And that little seed of shared revenue around the world and the marketing of the Premier League did actually brought revenues for any team in the Premier League to be massive unlike all the other leagues. Uh, England did a great job of promoting itself in England to keep the fans and the excitement live when you watched on TV and then spread it out around the world as an amazing television package. The Premier League is the equivalent of the NFL, but for European soccer. But it has promotion and relegation. It has the battles. It has the tension of, of every game meaning something. All 38 games mean something. There's something on it for every game. And this Super League and these folks who want to take sport and make it purely about business are missing a key ingredient. The fans matter. It can never be just about money. It's not actually a good investment. And it's not something that we should take for granted. It's not something that we can let owners take for granted. The fans, the singing, the songs, the sarcasm, the marches, the drums, the derbies, all that stuff is what makes football. Just because the byproduct of that is eyeballs and television revenue and this narrative and this story, the core of it is the feelings that the competitive nature of sport bring. Americans, we don't get this. We've manufactured it in our sport because all our sports are closed franchises made for business. But there's a reason why Americans see the passion of Wrexham, see the passion of a relegation battle, see the fans singing, see that, and we're drawn to it. We want the authenticity more than anything in the whole world. It's Super Bowl week here in the United States, and we're going to have the Kansas City Chiefs play the Eagles. I don't care. They're trying to spend two weeks to drum up me caring more than anything in the whole world. But you know what I do care about? I care about the Merseyside Derby. I care about the history of Leeds and Man United. I care about Arsenal trying to get past Brentford. These aren't even my teams. And I know the pain and hurt and desire that these games are going to bring because there's something on them. I'm getting goosebumps. You can see. Uh, when I talk about football, it comes into me. It lifts me up. It makes something 
that I didn't know existed exist. And I can't explain it. It's mystical, it's magical, and they're trying to steal and monetize mysticism <laughs> and the feeling of a Sunday of time. Um, and I, and I, and I do want to connect this back to my beloved Manchester city, because we're taking a real beating within this. So, um, city PSG and Chelsea, these are the three clubs that ushered in, not just wealth, the premier league, um, ushered in wealth with man United making a lot of money and figuring out how to do sponsorships and and Real Madrid and Barca really expanding and making money on their own television deals. But Real, Barca, sorry, but Chelsea in 2004 with the fall of the Soviet Union money from Abramovich, he had billions of dollars, ill-begotten, whatever the case may be. Uh, he was called Putin's banker. He bought Chelsea. He transformed Chelsea. And by that, transform the Premier League. Four years after that, Manchester City were purchased for $150 million and all the debt from a Thailand businessman who ran the team into the ground, owned the team for less than a year, didn't have the money. It was totally fake. They purchased the team, $200 million in the, in the Eastlands of Manchester, and it was a mess. There was nothing there. There was a, a shitty stadium that got built and, and a marsh. And though, and then PSG in 2010 in Paris, buying the brand, the Qatari Wealth Fund, city owned by the UAE and Sheikh Mansour. So you had sovereign states purchase teams. And their level of wealth is not billions or ones and twos of billions or threes and fours of billions. It's hundreds of billions. So their scale of what they spend is beyond the comprehension of the Premier League. And city proceed to decide We've bought the name Manchester. We know what the work of Alex Ferguson and Manchester United did. We're buying a team called Manchester City. The branding of Manchester is in it. They know they have a passionate fan base in the beloved Manchester City faithful who are the most gallows humors fans in the league, having gone down to League One when, when Man United were winning the treble. So three European big cups and trophies in 1999 city were singing about Paul Dickov and, um, and Brian Herlock about winning the league two playoffs against Tony Pulis's Gillingham. I'm going to keep talking about that because that's a seminal moment in the history of the club. And it's what makes city city. We don't care about the wealth. We could lose it. It's not our big, it's not, it's not a big deal to us. We'll live without having money, without our club being massive or anything doesn't matter to us. We're, we've been relegated. We've been in League Two. Who cares? <laughs> doesn't matter to me. It's not me. I just love the team. You show me a team in sky blue and I'll show up. So what I'm driving at is that City took on the league. Chelsea were taking things on. And they flushed the market with money. And lifted up all boats. And forced Manchester United to find new revenue. Forced Arsenal to find new revenue. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Emirates was built around this time. Arsene Wenger knew they needed to find new revenue and force teams to improve their day, their day, their game day revenue and force West Ham to see the Olympic Stadium and be on the list to get it. The money spent by these oligarchs and terrible people, I don't care about the morality, lifted the Premier League. The drive for money pushed 
for money and competitiveness. The competitive pushed all the other teams. We can say what we want, the morality of, of FFP and what City did and whatever. Having been a Yankee fan in the 2000s and watching the Yankees and the Red Sox go to war, literally, over every player, every free agent, culminating in the 2004 and then 2007 and all those battles, uh, Pedro throwing Zimmer down, that war between those two teams lifted the entire American League and forced teams to, to, to find a, a competitive edges like Moneyball, like uh, statistical analysis of finding players. And that has happened in the Premier League. Arsenal did it. And now we have Brighton and Brentford, the two best run teams in the league, run by analytical sharp teams. And why did that happen? Because teams like Manchester City and PSG and, and Chelsea pushed these archaic old teams with their ill-begotten wealth to improve and be better. Now, I don't want the Super League. I want the competitiveness. What I'm trying to drive at is that this money that we're supposedly stealing and cheating was put into the league and into the club. It wasn't taken out for profit. Manchester City spent money and cheated. Sure, to improve and win on the field. To beat Manchester United and their owners who were taking money out of the club. Manchester United is billions in debt and taking revenue out of the club for the Glaciers every year. But we're the bad guys. It's fine. It's fine. FSG taking money out of the club so that they can pay a dividend. And now they're chintzing out on Liverpool. That's fine. That's fine. All I'm saying is Manchester City spent money and lifted this league by making it more competitive and making those nouveau riche teams sweat to the point that they have to create a super league just to keep up. And this, I think, in the long run, this competitive battle, what we Americans think of as the market and what people love about the competitiveness the promotion and relegation of the Premier League comes from the money that poured in. But FFP and going after City is a means to stop it, to control the money coming in, to stop the competitive battle because they can't keep up. Maybe they should find better ways to make money. Maybe they should find better ways to compete. There's only 11 players on a team. They're not all going to be worth all the money. The Premier League right now is seven deep. Did that money that City spent and cheated make them be in first place right now? Did Liverpool push them to within two points twice? Yes, they did. And they should be proud of that. And Liverpool were fantastic. And would have won the league any other year. And would have never got 97 points without relentlessly chasing City down. Let's go to the Premier League weekend. So we start with some games, actually. Uh, Leeds played in midweek against Manchester United. Uh, the first game after Jesse Marsh uh, left Leeds. And we'll talk about Leeds for a little bit. Um, this was a great game for Leeds. They came out in the first two minutes, scored goals early, really punched United in the mouth. Um, we have... Um, Nyonto is really a, a player. He's this short, diminutive, $4 million winger from Italy. 
only 5'6", but built like a brick shit house. Reminds City fans of Sean Wright Phillips, if you don't remember him. Winger, played for City, played in MLS for Red Bull, played for Chelsea, and then came back to City in the end. He's been great. The only reason he's playing is because there were so many injuries at Leeds, and he's very direct. And Leeds played great. They played the way they always play under Jesse Marsh, except, you know, this time they got results. And this time they scored their goals. And they did hang on. United are very good at home. Um, it's not really working for Veg, Veg, Wout Veghorst with United. When Sancho, another reclamation project, another great move by Ten Hag. Ten Hag handled the Sancho issue and got it going. Um, and he's now firing on all cylinders. But I do want to give a shout out to Jesse Marsh. We talked about him a few times. He's going to be gutted that he had to leave this team, but Leeds still don't have a manager, and they still have to play United again by a quirk of the schedule. Both Uniteds play each other twice this week. But let's go to the rest of the fixtures this week. Like I said, we have Leeds versus Manchester United again, <laughs> which is fun because historically great battles. If you remember, if I spoke about it before, early in the Premier League, early in in Sir Alex Ferguson's tenure, Leeds were the best team in the league. The back pass rule comes in and actually ruins Leeds because they were a long ball playing team. But here's the schedule. On Saturday morning, we get a London Derby, West Ham versus Chelsea at the London Stadium. What do we find from the rest of Chelsea's team? So much for Graham Potter to do. Then Leicester City play Tottenham. Leicester come off a good win, 4-2 against Villa, where they come back. Leicester, Tottenham, Lose Basuma, who has a broken ankle, and Hugo Lloris. So they may be in trouble. I like um, Fraser Foster as a goalkeeper. He was really good for Southampton when they were good under Pochettino and Ronald Koeman. But it's he's long in the tooth now. He's six foot seven and a bit of lumbery. So we'll see there. Then I will talk about this game later. Crystal Palace versus Brighton. The M23 Derby. These two teams have beef from shared stadiums, from brutal games in the FA Cup. And this is a secret underground little rivalry of the suburbs of London uh, between Brighton. Well, Brighton's not a suburb, but Crystal Palace are in the suburbs of London. And it's only about 20 miles away from each other, but different culturally. Crystal Palace is in a urban working class neighborhood. And then you take the train down south to um, to Brighton, which is a seaside resort. It's like the distance between, say, uh, the Lower East Side or like downtown Brooklyn and going to Coney Island. It's about the same feel of like it's a different area but that's one to look at uh it should be really passionate i'm gonna go check that one out because i love to see matoma then your beloved arsenal play brentford a lots of uh discussion on this one brentford best team in the league over the last six matches taking on arsenal who have a little bit of blood in the mouth after uh taking a shot against everton what will brentford bring in this game brentford not as good on the road as they are at home, and tend to play these big six games really well, but they get all the night games because they have such a good atmosphere. So can Brentford bring that energy on a 3 p.m. on a Saturday? Not sure. Six-pointer here, Southampton v. Wolves. Southampton are in deep trouble. Wolves played well, had the great result against Liverpool. Fulham, Nottingham Forest. Nottingham Forest away against Fulham? No chance. Nottingham Forest is going to lose this one. Bournemouth in the Eddie Howe returns derby. Bournemouth hosts Newcastle. Uh, Newcastle need a win. They've been drawing a lot of games. The aforementioned Leeds versus Manchester United. Then That's on Sunday. And then Sunday late, Manchester City versus Aston Villa. 
Unai Emery has never beat Pep. Ooh, but you City living with the cloud, living with all the FFP, living with the investigation. I don't know how it's going to affect the team. Will it galvanize the team? Who the fuck knows with City? We've been under investigation for 15 years. Then we go to Liverpool. It's Anfield. It's Everton. And Everton are in great shakes after an amazing win um, against Arsenal. I think Everton are favorites in this game. Is that possible after 25 years that they could be favorites? I don't know. But uh, it is a little bit wild to think about that. Um, I do want to go back again, you know, having, having read the schedule, talked about what games we are, and just sort of wrap, put a bow on Jesse Marsh um, at Leeds. I think he was hard done. Um, I liked what he was doing. I liked his energy. Uh, I thought that the American thing was held against him, especially by the Leeds fans. The board was split, so I don't know if people know this, but um, Leeds are partially owned by the 49ers group, so they have a stake in the team, and they're slated on a time-released purchase to purchase the team in the next 90 days or 100 days, something like that. And I think that they wanted to keep Marsh. Um, he's American, and, and they they made the purchase of of um, of Weston McKenney and and backed Marsh on his t- on his players, but I think. And I blame Christian from the WhatsApp group for this. The loss against Forrest really put Leeds into trouble and Marsh into trouble. Uh, losing winless in eight is is relegation fodder and firing fodder. And he wasn't loved by the fans. When you're an American or you're a foreigner, well, not a foreigner. When you're an American and you are have the personality of Jesse Marsh, you do not get a lot of rope. Uh, and in fact, whatever rope you get, is designed to be put around your neck, uh, and they will pull you out and get rid of you. Um, Leeds still play well. There's, this relegation battle is just an incredible state. There's seven teams. We know the only two that I feel good about going down, good, I don't want you to go down, but you got to go, you got to go, is Southampton and Bournemouth, both not looking good right now. Um, Gary O'Neill. New manager bump gets the job. They're winless since he got the job and have only scored one goal. And then um, and then on, on the Southampton side, Nathan Jones is like talking crazy. He hasn't got that team playing. He wasted his manager bounce on cup games and really needed those wins in the league. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. Leeds have no manager. We don't know who they're going to go with. The thought is that... Leeds will go for Bielsa, Bielsalismo, because Bielsa's football, he's so loved at Leeds for bringing him up, and he had them playing in a way that they liked, and he had a very philosophical view that an acolyte of Bielsa will be the next coach. So West Brom's Coburn, uh, Irola in Spain, I got his name wrong, but a Spanish Copa Villa, Villarreal, not Villarreal, Villadolid, I think, uh, was going to come, but who knows? Um, and then the other thing is just like the Premier League, as much as all the money is coming in, it's also now a place for great managers. You look at Wolves, they have Lopetegui, who was managing Real Madrid and Spain. And you have, you know, does does Pochettino want the Leeds job? I mean, it's that level. The, the Premier League, you know, we were talking about the Super League and all those things. The Premier League is at such a high level. Everybody around the world in all of football 
is trying to get to the Premier League and there's only 20 jobs. So you might take a job like Leeds, not a glamorous club, but why not? Why not take it? Anyway, speaking of managers who got lucky and took the job that were near them, uh, Chelsea playing West Ham. Um, this is a big one for this is a big one for Chelsea. Again, I've been saying it. I said it last week. They need results. I don't know how long it's going to take. I love Graham Potter. I'm so disappointed and so worried for him. And I don't know what's going to happen there. You know, we have this essentially American revolution happening at Chelsea where Todd Bowley is essentially giving contracts of an American style eight-year contracts. The English have no idea what to do with this concept of a five-year deal or a four, five, ten-year deal. A five-year deal in football is outlandish. And giving eight, you know, for a young player, it just seems anathema to the whole culture of the sport. And we're just trying to figure out how that works and what it means. And maybe Bowley's just going to kick it down the can and just be like, oh, okay, whatever. I'll just go down the road. Uh, one thing I do want to bring up with the there's a little bit of resurgence for West Ham is that, you know, all the fancy scorers that they grabbed, uh, Cornet and, G and, and Skamaka are out. So they're going back to Antonio and going back to Bowen. They've, they're getting some, some consistency with Rice and Paqueta. And then Aguirre, who I talked about in preseason, who missed months, but was amazing for Morocco. Nayef Aguirre is an amazing defender. He saved the game for them in an, in an attack all against um, Callum Wilson in their last game against um, Newcastle. Again, no one thinks that West Ham is being relegated, even though they're one point off the relegation zone. This is a good team. I could see a draw happening. What Chelsea just needs is to get that early goal. Just find any way to get a goal. And once they get the goal, like I said, Chelsea's defense is not the problem. They can't score. <laughs> they, like Havertz just floats around. We're going to see what happens with Mudrick. Apparently he was sick. Gallagher, as much as I love him, he's just a runner. And I don't know what he does. We'll see if Fernandez can affect the team a bit more. But Chelsea, again, trying to push themselves forward and figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to kick on. Everything's not out of reach for them. They just need to find a way to get themselves moving and get themselves into the relegation fight. Get a few games in a row, three games in a row, four games in a row, and let themselves start picking up points because the way things are going now, they're just sputtering and they don't want to be in crisis. And we're going to go on to another London Derby. I talked about it a little bit already in, in the rundown of games. Arsenal taking on Brentford. Again, Arsenal. You've got to get wins. The key thing that Sir Alex Ferguson said and, and Pep Guardiola said and whatever, is it's a cliche, of course, but it's how you react to the game after you lose. Uh, I wouldn't say that Arsenal had a bad performance. They just ran into a Dyche performance, the best of, that Dyche can bring. Um, and so they have to find a way to get the team back going. They're playing City on Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, yo. We'll bring that up on Wednesday. So will Arteta rotate the team? It seems like certain players are a little getting gamey. Martinelli's not scoring much. I haven't heard much from him. How does how does the team react after not scoring for a game, not scoring in the FA Cup? They've had two games in a row without scoring a goal. How do they react? How do they feel? Where are they? Where are they at inside? It's very much like um, like uh, is their rhythm breaking down? 
These things can happen. This isn't like a knock on Arsenal that they're not going to win the league, but they've got to respond to these things. I think so. one of the things that was good for them was that they kept playing and kept playing and they'd keep scoring goals and wouldn't get shut out. But now they've had some problems creating and Ketia missed a couple chances. They need a little bit of a, of a kick. They need to move forward a little bit and see where they are um, and see how they can just get themselves moving again because they're slipping just a little bit. Two losses in a row, once in the FA Cup, once to Everton. Um, you know, they had the three goals against Man United and they won the Derby. After that, that late, those two games, we thought, oh God, here comes Arsenal. They're going to win this thing. And then the slip up against City and then the loss against Everton. Bad luck. No one thinks they're going to win. You know, getting 100 points was going to be really hard, but we'll see where they are. And Brentford will not be easy. Brentford are tough. Brentford know how to play. They know who they are. They have a good coach. They've got everything that you need to go and win a game. Their last games, they just beat Southampton. They had a nil-nil against Brentford, then had beaten Bournemouth, lost in the FA Cup, and beat Liverpool and West Ham a, 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 earlier in the month. So they're they're on form. They're moving along great. They've scored tons of goals. And you've got to be careful if you're Arsenal. You know, over the last six, Brentford are on 12 goals, three against. Arsenal on 12 goals, six against. Brentford have been better. Brentford have been better than Arsenal over their last six. The opponents matter. The energy matters. But we're going to see what Arsenal are made of. This is a key game, and I think Arteta knows it. You can't have three losses on the bounce. You've got to score goals and get the energy back in your team. They're good. These are two very tactically astute teams. And if you watched, and I shared something earlier, if you watched Tfue IRL, they really covered the Everton game and what they did to nullify Arsenal. And I wonder if Brentford will do the same thing. The 4-5-1, where the press was shifting back and forth into a 4-4-2 with the two midfielders switching sides to deny space in the middle of the park where, where Arsenal like to play. Arsenal like to get you all over the place. But if Brentford can stay disciplined, they're going to give Arsenal a really, really hard time. Um, got to go into City. So City, uh, I'll give a little bit of a, of a rundown of where we are with the, the great um, 100 charge thing from the Premier League. It's going to be long. It's going to take hours and years, and it's not going to be six months. Uh, they've hired the same lawyer, a bad name for a lawyer, Lord Panic. Not great. Uh, <laughs> uh, they've hired the same lawyer that they had for the CAS, the, the Court of Sport in Europe, um, for their previous fight against UEFA. And they are just going to take these charges and really fight and say something to the effect of like, hey, you guys are just looking for something for us. We're not giving you all our documentation. We're going to fight you tooth and nail. The more we give you, the more you'll find because you're looking. Um, do I think City are probably guilty? Of course they're guilty. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, not naive when they show, when, when the Deloitte Money League shows Manchester City earning more money than Real Madrid. I mean, that's just not feasible. There's not enough fans. There's not enough City fans unless, you know, unless they're cooking the books. But maybe maybe the, the thing is, is like maybe the corruption and the cooking of the books goes up to the sponsorship level. So they're just like, yeah, we spent, you know, we spent 100 million on City. 
Meanwhile, the UAE gave that company oil at a cut rate price and that's separate from that byline. And they're just like, yeah, we did. You know what I mean? Like, do they have their ducks lined up in a row to to the level of conspiracy, hand washing hands? Like there's a lot of extra stuff that's going on with the city thing because the government in England is actually in bed with the United Arab Emirates for getting a lot of money. A lot of investment is coming from that. And will the government get involved on the on the sly and be like, hey, 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 don't mess with these people. They're going to they're going to pull a deal. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of power in this this sort of wealth transfer from the modernizing Gulf states, whether you agree with their social politics, they're aware and they're very controlled on we have oil now. We're investing our money all around the world into all different things because that money one day is going to run out. We're going to use that money to grow as many businesses as we can from Emirates Airways to Etihad Airways to Elistat to be in sports. All these things are well-funded, well-heeled companies that are not really profitable, but being propped up by oil. So they're looking on a 50-year horizon and they're using Europe and they're funding things and they're putting money here. And Manchester City is frankly part of that. Uh, it's a way, you know, for the, they use the word sport washing, but it's a way to project soft power and make deals and have guys come to the game and whatever. Um, I think it's legitimate. I think it's fair. I think Europeans and Americans don't like that someone is doing the game that they used to do. Uh, if you look at your turn of the century history, Americans did that to Europe. We were the ones you know, sort of using soft power and sort of going, yeah, we'll do it our way. We're the Americans. We do it this way. And we had the money and we had, you know, the innovation and we had all these things. Now, did we have a stronger culture, not based on Islamic law? Yeah, but we're still a Christian country, but we shared that with them. So this is a little bit different. I tend to think that it's a little funky. And I tend to think that city are going to fight through this and get where they need to go. Um, Oh, I should talk about football. Uh, City playing Villa. Villa coming off a really poor performance against Leicester City where they frankly just gave up too many goals. I, I just think they made mistakes. They were all over the place. They actually got new players, which is good. But uh, City are odds on to win this game and haven't lost to Villa. You know, if we remember the last game of the season, the the <laughs> uh, the Gundogan goals, it, the three goals in the seven minutes against Villa, they were up 2-0, City won. They had a draw in their last game. That was under Steven Gerrard in September. It seemed weird at the time. But City have de defeated Villa mostly over the last couple years. We don't know what the lineup's going to be. You know, City didn't make any signings. Akanji, Laporte, Lewis, who the hell knows what's going to happen? We just had Cancelo leave. I think City will have to will have their hands full with Bailey and Watkins. And listen, Unai Emery is clever and knows what he's doing. The thing is that I think about is the back line for Villa is poor. Uh, it's still Dimitri Young. Sorry, Dimitri Young. He was a ball player, fat ball player. <laughs> Played for Cincinnati. It's still Ashley Young and Lucas Dina, who are not great defensive players. Uh, Kanza and Mings always have a mistake in them. And then Martinez is a good goalkeeper we know from the World Cup, but he can get rattled. I'm hoping City just has an easy game. Again, look for those goals in the first 15 minutes. If City scores a goal in the first 15 minutes, they're gold. If they don't and they have to go into the half, then I start to worry. I'd expect at least a good performance to happen. 
it's been a long time since City had a good performance. And Villa are sitting in 11th on 28. City on 45 in second place. We do have to go there. It's time. It's time to talk about Everton and Liverpool. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation this week on Liverpool. Uh, some of the things that I brought up actually ended up being the national conversations around Liverpool, like Klopp. Does he take responsibility for this? Can he see a change? I know that his philosophy is very powerful and has to be completely bought into the running, the pressing, the high line and all those things. But can he adapt the team to keep that identity but still push the team forward? If they keep doing the same thing, they're going to keep losing. Uh, I think about this game, um, even though, you know, I don't think Liverpool have lost at home to Everton in 20 years. I think a draw for Liverpool at this point is a good result. I'm afraid for Liverpool in this game. Onana, Onana, Decore, and Adrisa Gay are the type of hardworking, attacking, in-your-face midfielders that Liverpool are dying for, that that Henderson used to be, that Fabinho used to be. Um, it was always Thiago who made all the moves, but when you think about Wijnaldum, Wijnaldum, Henderson, and Fabinho were just in-your-face killers. And then you throw in Firmino as the extra midfielder. He'd make up the numbers as a, as a false nine, and he would just kill. They would suffocate you. And now they can't do that. But then you saw with Everton... They did it. They did it. They did it against Arsenal. If you think that Sean Dyche isn't going to try and come in there, swing his giant ginger nuts, and be like, I came into this team. I got no transfer money. I fucking beat Arsenal at home, and now I'm going to beat Liverpool. He's going to fucking try and do that. That's for shit sure. You can guarantee it. This Everton team is good. Frank Lampard was that shitty fucking coach. I'm telling you, Everton is going to finish in the mid-table. They're so good. I didn't ever understood it. But I do. I think the thing to look out for is how's Klopp doing? Could this be the end of Liverpool? If they can't, if he feels like he can't reach the team and FSG are trying to sell the team and aren't going to spend money and they tell him, hey, we, we can't spend money. We're trying to sell the team. I'm not going to put another $200 million in this thing while I'm on the way out. What is Klopp going to do? What is Klopp going to do? Is he going to leave? Is he going to take his bag and go home and go, I did the best I could. I took it as far as I could and let someone else battle for this now. I don't know. I don't know. And it could be. It could be that Liverpool goes right back to the wilderness, honestly. There's no reason. They don't have... Sorry. They don't have a great history within the context of Premier League history of really being a well-run club. And let me caveat that. They were a well-run club, but they have their moments of their best moments have been under charismatic strong managers who drove the club forward. Benitez did that 
tapped into the Spanish market, completely made Liverpool the best defensive unit in the Premier League and let Steven Gerrard and do the things he needed to do to win games. And then, you know, Julier also was very good before him. And then after that soured because of the defensive nature of, of Benitez and his kind of like maniacal, I do everything right and I want to control everything, they really went to the wilderness again. FSG by them, by a stroke of luck, Klopp has a bad year at Dortmund and they grab Dortmund and they grab Klopp and it's a match made in heaven. But if Klopp leaves, what does that mean for Liverpool? They, these charismatic kind of coaches don't really grow on trees. And there isn't one out there that I could see that fits with Liverpool as it is today. Although I would imagine that if Klopp were to leave or announce that he was going to leave in the next month, Tuchel would be the first manager to show up at Liverpool. I mean, it feels German to German. Tuchel took over for at Dortmund after Klopp left. I mean, it seems like a match made in heaven where Klopp, where Tuchel would take over for Klopp. But I don't know. It's an interesting concept. Uh, Tuchel's pretty ambitious. He's very London and cosmopolitan. I think he had a he was breaking up with his wife and he had a kid in London and he's probably still in London. Um, I'm gonna move on there. Think of talk about the relegation battle because we have a six-pointer with Southampton and Wolves. Wolves with Lopetegui are just sharper. They're just good at this point. And I wonder, I wonder what Nathan Jones is gonna do with this team because they're young and inconsistent. It seems they've moved Ward Prowse into a number 10 role where they can get him on the ball to get him shots off because they just don't have the players to do it. I really love Salisu. I have all season. Uh, and Lavia is a great midfielder who hasn't been able to make a difference yet. But um, Lavia and and Ward Prowse and Adams, to a lesser extent, are really the chances that they have. Adozi, also a Manchester City player. Again, I don't like Bazuno. I talk about their goalkeeper all the time. He's fucking awful, and he cannot be playing for this team. <laughs> It's just a disaster. I don't know what they're thinking. Uh, Wolves, on the other hand, very clear. Dawson comes in, just a solid Premier League defender who just will be like, you know what? I got this. Not a problem. Uh, he he steps in, scores a goal. And then Kilman also really, really good. Uh, it does bring one of their better defenders to the bench. I can't remember his name. Um, I'd have to look it up. Uh, no, I can't find it off the top of my head. Anyway, and but they'll always have Matinho to come in, and they've grabbed Cunha and Sarabia to try and score goals, and it looks like Wolverhampton Wolves have finally got enough goal scoring. That was always their problem. They couldn't score goals. So they're now scoring goals, three last week, away to Southampton. This is a six-pointer. I think if Southampton lose this game, Wolves are up. They're in 15th now on 20. If Southampton lose this game, they're going to fire Jones and they'll go to another manager, and I don't know what they're going to do. Right, Southampton have lost eight of their last nine uh, with Wolves winning their last four against Southampton. So it's really, really not a good time for Southampton, uh, and I think if Wolves get the win here, they'll be in really good shape, able to kick on and call themselves champs <laughs> of the bottom uh, I do want to touch on this Eddie Howe derby. So what an amazing place to be for him to return. I imagine he's going to get massive cheers. These are these things that football culturally, we're going to have Newcastle, 
Bournemouth, Eddie Howe, looking at his old team and just going, thank God I'm in Newcastle. But this is an important game for Newcastle. This is the furthest they can go. Is it? Maybe Southampton's further. So Newcastle, oh God, it's England, may travel like 800 miles. Uh, it's going to be a long trip for them. They'll probably fly. Uh, going to Bournemouth, a small town on the on the, on the the ocean, 7,000-seat stadium. They're going to bring the Toon Army down. I can't imagine they'll probably have to leave. <laughs> it's a late game. They'll probably leave first thing in the morning or maybe the night before and play, try and win this game. But, um, I mean, it wasn't too long ago. Newcastle was in the championship and Bournemouth was in the league. <laughs> so I'm not sure what's going to happen with Bournemouth. They are winless in their last five, uh, really slipping. Only have one point in their last six games. Minus 10, only scored one goal. Meanwhile, Wolves have only scored five. But again, what I talked about before, only given up that lone goal to West Ham. They had been on a five-goal, goal, goal five-clean-sheet streak. But for their problem is they're not scoring goals. The Almiron goal machine disappeared. They had a nil-nil versus Palace, then a one-nil versus Fulham, nil-nil versus Arsenal. That was that first drop points. The nil-nil versus Leeds looks even crazier because Leeds just give up goals to everyone. So they've only scored the five goals in six games. They're really slipping in that regard. But again, if you don't give up goals, you don't lose. And Newcastle, do not give up goals. <laughs> so uh, I would expect Bournemouth, they ain't scoring. <laughs> no fucking chance. Shar, Botman, Byrne, Trippier, fucking legends with Pope. That five. Trippier, Shar, Botman, Byrne, and Pope are just going to go down in history for um, for Newcastle fans as like you know as a defense the way um, the way Keon and Keon and Adams and 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 um, and Winterburn and uh, and and that that group with Arsenal under under Graham Taylor went down you know one nil to the Arsenal they're going to start singing one nil to the Newcastle the way things are going but we'll see if Gordon who's new to the team can bring a goal they need Wilson to get off the Schneid they need Gamarish to come back they'll still be defensive with Longstaff and then for Bournemouth yes they have spent lots of money they got Semino who's really good uh, got Sensi is in the back. Otara, they've got players and they're trying to move the team forward, but it's the Premier League. Everyone has spent money. You're just trying to keep up with nothing. I wonder, did Dominic Solanke die? Yeah, he's doubtful. They really need him to come back in. He was supposed to be their goal scorer. He did everything for them in the championship, scoring like 29 goals in the championship. And without him, they're really hurting and they just need him to get back. He's doubtful for this game. Maybe he'll come back. We'll see what happens there, but they really, really need Solanke back in there to score goals. Uh, for Newcastle, we expect to see Isak. That's going to be a big difference for them. They just need more options up front to try and get those goals from that amazing pressing that they do. Leicester Spurs. Conte, I believe, is still out, but they had a great performance against City. We know. Fucking goddamn Spurs. Ruined my goddamn weekend again. I can't... Why can't City beat Spurs? I don't understand it. Uh, they sh they shouldn't have a problem versus Leicester. Leicester score goals, but Leicester give up goals. Uh, as long as Madison is in this team, they're going to win. Uh, the form table's got 
Spurs on three wins and three draws with Leicester on only one win and a draw in their last four. Yeah, everything is directly, completely even for Spurs. Eight, four, eight against, three wins, three losses, nine points, which is nice. Uh, you can't go the season that way. Leicester still scoring goals, but again, scored seven, gave up 12. So you can get a sense how that works for them. Last few games, Tottenham killed Leicester early in the year uh, in September in a 6-2 when Spurs were scoring goals. I don't know what the hell happened, what we were doing then. Uh, Tottenham on a bit of a streak against against Leicester have won. Let's see here. One, two, three, four. Four out of five scoring boatloads of goals. But also, Leicester scores goals too. We'll see what happens here. Here, Here's the stat. You ready? Tottenham have scored at least three goals in their last four matches against Leicester in all competitions. Basically, bet the over. <laughs> bet the over. Um, you know, we, we still want to give give a shout out to Harry Kane. He's finally getting a little bit more respect, I think. You know, 200 goals in the league, 267 for his career. What a player, what he does, how he can play two positions. He's more than just a striker. And I'm looking forward to watching him break Alan Shearer's record because it does not look like he's going anywhere. Spurs already fending off, you know, your yearly rumors of Kane to United, Kane to City. Well, no one, Kane's not going to City. But, you know, the regular sort of scheduled rumors of this guy going here and that guy going there. Um, I just think we're grounding up here. But uh, do want to give a shout out to a couple more matches. Fulham versus Nottingham Forest. Again, I spoke about it earlier. Fulham. Hmm. They're going to beat my, your beloved Forest, Chris. Uh, you know, Forest have gotten their points and are doing well. I do want to talk about this Crystal Palace Brighton game. It's a derby, and Matoma is the best. Palace have drawn their last three home matches against Brighton. Um, but they have failed to win in their last five. So Crystal Palace are slipping. The form table looks like this. Brighton, second in the league over their last six. Four wins, a draw, and a win. But the big thing here is 15 goals for, eight against, with a plus seven. Palace not doing the same. They are winless in their last five with two draws. Uh, not playing well right now. And where are we with the um, Patrick Vieira? I, I feel like... He had some juice. He was doing well. Now it's kind of slipping. I really think Connor Gallagher made a difference in that team. I'm not a fan of Hughes on their team. He took the stupid handball. Um, he doesn't bring the dynamism that Gallagher had. He's kind of just a destroyer, and I'm not seeing much from Decore. They really need Joe Commanderson to come back. Uh, it does not look like he's going to be back anytime soon, but, you know, We'll see what happens there. And Zaha also unavailable. But that's nice because it lets Eze, Elise, and Edward all play together. Um, for, for my friends from Brighton, just give me more Matoma. Give me more March. Give me more McAllister. Give me more Casado. And let me give the love fest to Lewis Dunk, the most underrated defender in the Premier League. I fucking love him. He's the captain of Brighton. When City go down and I have to watch him in the championship, I'll still love them. But Brighton will still be there, and I will pour my love into my beloved Seagulls. <laughs> and uh, hopefully they will continue. Long may it continue. The M23 Derby, uh, lots and lots of juice on this one. Has a strong history locally 
It's a weird one where no one knows why. Just a bunch of games with red cards and people sharing stadiums and real local silly stuff that is what makes football so great and what I talked about at the start. If you have a closed league and a super league, teams like Brighton will never be in it. Teams like Crystal Palace will drop out. They'll never be there. Chelsea will never play Hull. Manchester City will never play, you know, uh, Wrexham. Give a little update on Wrexham. Our friends from the FA Cup replay round. I sort of missed it as I was getting tired at the end of the last show. Fourth round replays. Blackburn defeats Birmingham. Grimsby Town over Luton Town. Burnley, a 94th minute winner over Ipswich Town. Fleetwood over Wednesday. Sheffield United defeat Wrexham. And Fulham defeat Sunderland. Uh, in two weeks' time at the end of the month, the fifth round, we're getting close to the quarterfinal rounds. We'll have Stoke versus Birmingham, Fulham versus Leeds, Southampton, Grimsby Town, West Ham versus United at Old Trafford. Leicester will face Blackburn. City pick up Bristol City. Burnley over Fleetwood. They have a good chance of getting through. And mighty Tottenham will go to Bramall Lane on March 1st to, def- to play Sheffield United and Billy Sharp's Blades. So we say goodbye to Wrexham. And I think it's a good bookend on this show to appreciate something like Wrexham in the face of Super Leagues, in the face of competitiveness. And, you know, Wrexham and City are not that dissimilar. I know this sounds absurd, but if you have rules to prevent investment, how far do they go? Can Ryan Reynolds and and Rob McElhenney not spend as much money because Wrexham is in the fifth division and there's a salary cap and and there's no promotion? There's no hope for that team to go higher and that money that they advance, they can't just keep investing for it to move up? What if there was financial fair play down there at at the level of it's the fifth division and there's regulations to make sure that the football league doesn't have any more relegation? Think about that. Think about what Wrexham is. Wrexham is a story of, of, you know, of, of people spending money and investing in a club. They can't generate that revenue. And City just did the same thing. They just had the draw drib, drawbridge pulled up on them, and someone got mad and decided it was done for them. You know it, and I know it too. City and Wrexham, like this. All right. That was the Squeaky Bum Time podcast with Laurent Cortines. We are the football wing of the Chop Sports Channel and presented exclusively on the Premier Streaming Network. We record on on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you are listening on Apple or listening on YouTube or wherever you are, please rate and review the show. It means everything in the world to us. And Tony Scalicchi, if you made it this far, I love you, brother. Bye.